Hey, it's Alex Clark, and uh, I just had a huge spillover guest, Katie Faust. We talked about her brand new book, Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City. But she also is an expert on something that I'm obsessed with talking about, which is big fertility, specifically moral and ethical qualms that you might come across as a Christian, as a pro-life person who is dabbling or using that industry. And so if you're like, well, what does that mean, fertility industry? I'm talking about IVF, um, surrogacy, gay adoption, all of that kind of stuff, egg donation, sperm donation. So Katie is an expert on talking about that. She is also the founder of a nonprofit, Them Before Us. She is a child's rights activists. So I have Katie with me and we're doing a supplemental video to our spillover episode. Since that was all about her new book, this, I want to go into this fertility stuff. And I've had you on the spillover before to talk about this stuff, but we didn't cover these topics. I want to talk about embryo adoption. So it wasn't until recently I learned how many embryos are on ice, just around the world, I'm assuming, but definitely in the United States. And so the thing is, is that we don't agree. Uh, we see ethical dilemmas with creating these embryos, right? Like out, outside of a, a biological perspective, or not biological, but what's yeah. the way? Well, like outside of the marital yeah. relationship. Yeah. So we disagree with that because there can be so many problems, like people destroying them or whatever, or we we come across this problem, which is you have all of these embryos sitting on ice. And it's basically, if you, I mean, from a Christian perspective, point of view, it's souls that are suspended. Right. Should we as Christian pro-lifers be adopting or going to these embryos first and adopting them before kids that are already born? Or like, what should we be doing about this problem? Okay. Very, very good question. So let's review a few children's rights basics, right? So what we do at Them Before Us is there's all kinds of adult interests, all kinds of adult desires and priorities when you're talking about reproductive technologies, whether it's the people that are donating the sperm or the egg or renting the womb, the intended couples that are designing the children, or maybe using IVF to create their own children. So there's all kinds of adults that have interests in this for a variety of reasons. At Them Before Us, we're like, we don't care. We are here to defend the kids. We are here to articulate a defense on their behalf, specifically related to their right to life and their right to a mother and father. That is a worldview that does not bend much to anybody. It insists that all adults, single, married, gay, straight, fertile, and infertile, bend to who children are, what they need, and what their natural rights are. So when you're considering reproductive technologies or any kind of family formation, we first center the child in that relationship. The child has a right to life. They have a right to their mother and father. All of you adults conform to those rights. We already agree largely that IVF, you know, spoiler, only 7% of children created through IVF are going to be born alive. They will be discarded. They will be donated to research. Um, they won't survive the thaw, the transfer. They will be deemed non-viable or they will just not make the grade and they'll be discarded or whatever it is. IVF is not a child-friendly process. But for the kids that do survive, some of them will be implanted and grow to term, many of them will be frozen and stored for later use is the idea. What do you do with what the American Society for Reproductive Medicine calls surplus embryos? This whole thing, this whole conversation is so dehumanizing. Surplus people stored on ice. And so the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is sort of the authority in the medical world, gives you three options. You can thaw and discard. That's option number one. Number two is you can donate to research. And number three is you can donate to another couple. So let's look at these through the lens of children's right to life and right to their mother and father. Thought and discard. 
thawing people and discarding people. So that would be no, that's against their right to life. Uh, donating them to research, that violates their right to life. Uh, that would be a no. You can donate yourself to research, but you cannot donate somebody else to research. Very interestingly, more couples opt for the donating their children to research than they do thawing and discarding them, mm. which is so bizarre. And what do they do with that research? They destroy these little lives, you know, that maybe are up to 14 days old, right? They'll take the teeniest human beings and they'll experiment on them. I didn't know that embryos could be up to 14 days old. That is the ethical limit for research on embryos. I guess I just, I didn't know they were any days old. Yes, yes. Once you make them in a Petri dish, you can allow them to grow and develop. And then around day three to five, you can grade them. This is mind blowing to me. Katie, I did not know this at all because- that right there, as a pro-life person, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I don't agree in first trimester abortions. Well, what if you've only been known you've been pregnant for a week? Well, yeah, I would say that's wrong. Mm -hmm. But so many people are like, well, it's just, it's not even anything yet because it's just right. in a dish. Right. So what is so mind-blowing is that the baby making industry, big fertility, destroys more embryonic lives per year than the baby taking industry, than abortion. Okay. And so when you had the Dobbs decision come down, you had fertility doctors in red states absolutely panicking because big fertility, IVF, sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy, none of that is compatible with the idea that life begins at conception. And if you have these red states with trigger laws that say, we're going to protect children once they're conceived, big fertility has to move out of those states. They cannot conduct business. Their whole model is built on creating, grading, destroying, transferring, donating, and researching on embryonic life. Wow. Okay. So then this third option then, should you donate your embryo to another couple? Okay. So these are people and we don't donate people. You can adopt people and that's different. But let me, before we get to, do we donate them? These children have a right to be known and loved by their mother and father. And what you've got in this situation is you've got surplus pregnancy. Now think about it in the context of unplanned pregnancy, because as we often talk about at Them Before Us, abortion and reproductive technologies are two sides of the same child commodifying coin, right? Abortion says, if a child is unwanted, I can violate their right to life and force them out of existence. Big fertility says, if a child is very wanted, I can violate some child's right to life, or maybe this child's right to their mother and father and force them into existence. And both of these mindsets are, this kid exists for me, their rights are based on what I want, okay? So what happens in an unplanned pregnancy? What's the ultimate solution there? It is not abortion, and it's not even adoption. The solution is parenting. If you create a baby, maybe accidentally, maybe it's unplanned, maybe you have a diagnosis that it worries you, that you're afraid of, the solution is not kill the child or give the child away. The ultimate solution is parent the child. The solution is reorient your life. You and the father of the child reorient your life so the child's right to life and right to their mother and father is protected, it means you are going to have to do hard things. And that's exactly how it's supposed to be. Now, if one or both can't or won't, then we think about adoption. But it is not a perfect solution. The child is going to experience loss in the adoption. They are going to lose their need and right to be raised by both people that created them. And as we've seen, adoptees even though they're adopted by people who are better educated, make more money, and statistically even spend more time with them than parents of biological kids, adoptees still struggle disproportionately because there is a major loss that they're grappling with for life. What is the solution to five extra kids in the freezer? It's not donating them. It's parenting them. Those are your children. 
It's not somebody else's responsibility to go in and rescue those but for kids. The, but for the parents who have decided, well, too late, I have abandoned them. Like, let's let's forget the conservative Christian couples who have embryos that you're saying you guys need to parent. But what about the ones that exist that have no parents? Should couples who are pro-life Christians, should those couples who are looking to adopt, should they, should we be going to those embryo banks or whatever? Or should we be adopting children that are born? Or I would like- say yes, carefully. Yes, carefully. And what I mean by that is traditional adoptive parents now understand or should understand that when you adopt a child, it's not like they need a home. We can parent a child. Ding. Problem solved. Right. What you're doing is you're going to be shepherding your child through lifelong questions of loss, abandonment, um, identity struggles. And that is what is routine now among adoptive parents in terms of the training that they get. So it is the same kind of mentality. Neither traditional adoption nor embryo adoption is a way to complete your family. This is not about you getting the kids that you feel like you need to fill your home. This is about who is going to be the best parent to the child who has lost their parents. So yes, if you feel called and it needs to be a calling to shoulder the load of children who have been abandoned by their parents in a way that is beyond what traditional adoptees have to wrestle through. It is going to be incredibly dystopic scenarios that you're going to be shepherding these kids through, right? Like, why is it that I have full genetic siblings who are 25 years older than me, and they're all going to Harvard, and we are on food stamps? Why is it that those kids get to be raised? What, what was it about them where they get to be raised by their full genetic parents who look just like them, and I don't look anything like you? There's a situation last year where um, a couple adopted two babies. Actually, they adopted an entire batch, which again is the way to go. If you're going to adopt children that are surplus embryos, do whatever you can to keep sibling groups together. It's the same principle in traditional adoption. Kinship bonds matter. Keep the siblings together where you can. So they adopted an entire group. And I believe that the babies that were born were only chronologically a year younger than the mother who gave birth to them. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, we are really in like brave new world territory here. It is. There's just going to be a lot of questions that parents of embryo adoption are going to need to be able to answer for their kids that are going to be very hard to answer because we should not tinker with reproduction in the ways we've been tinkering. Speaking of brave new world, we now have artificial wombs that we're hearing about all of the sudden. Uh, what is an artificial womb? Can it really do just as well as a actual human female biological womb that mm-hmm. God created? Why are they creating these? What's the end goal and what can we expect to happen? So we don't yet have artificial artificial wombs when it comes to human fetuses. But a couple of years ago, they did successfully gestate a lamb in what they call a bio bag for a couple months of the lamb's gestation. And so that's sort of functioning as the framework that they would use to develop artificial wombs for humans. There was that viral video like BioEdge or something that showed like factories of children in a very matrix-like setting last year. That doesn't exist, even though the video kind of made it look like, hey, look at this new technology we've developed. But China is working on artificial wombs. They're also simultaneously developing what they call robot nannies. So what you do is you create the sperm and egg in an embryo, gestate them to three to five days, grade them, implant the ones that you want. You can now plant 20 because when you cut out an actual woman, it's a lot easier to get access to something that will gestate for you. You see, like when you're making babies, there's three components that you need, sperm, egg, and womb. Sperm is very easy to access. Eggs are harder, but we've developed, you know, hormonal treatments and laparoscopic extractions so that we can get to those two. But it's very, very hard to find a woman who will offer her body for nine and a half months. And that's also the most expensive component of the baby making process. They also can 
be very stubborn. Women, when they're gestating, they'll, you know, when you say, well, I want to abort that baby, sometimes they say, no, I love this baby. You can't abort them. And that's pretty hard for the bottom line, especially when you're trying to get your exact product exactly right. And so if we can cut the woman out completely of the baby making process, it's going to be so much cheaper. We're going to be able to actualize the baby products that we want uh, much more easily. We can gestate them until much older, not just three to five days when we can then sort of grade them and figure out which one seems the most viable. We could get them to eight weeks, 12 weeks, 20 weeks, and then figure out who's got the disabilities, which one looks like they're, you know, developing the characteristics we want. And then you can delete the children that you don't want. That's one thing that the robot nannies in China are going to be controlling for. They can, you know, control like nutrition elements, temperature, things like that, determine who gets more and who gets nothing. And so we really are moving into a world that is nuts. How is it going to affect the kids, right? So I'm working on an article for this and I, I opened with this story. Before I was a mom, I was the assistant director at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. And so I've been to some orphanages. And the first time I ever went to a Chinese orphanage, I was young. I was probably 21 at the time, maybe 22. I'd never been to an orphanage before. I had been translating the medical reports for these babies forever. So it was incredible to be in the place of the babies that I had been, you know, translating and knowing on paper. And there was probably a hundred babies and they were, it was the three to six month room. So all the kids were three to six months old. There was two or three per crib and they were head to toe, head to toe, and they were all quiet. And I was like, this is amazing. How did they get, they must all be sleeping. They must be on a strict schedule. But then once I started walking the rows of cribs, I realized they weren't asleep. They were awake and they were looking around, but none of them were crying. I was like, wow, that's amazing. They're so happy. So I picked up a baby and she was kind of listless, looking around, like not doing much. But I had her for like two to three minutes and I was looking at her and I was like, baby, baby. And you know, there's something about babies and women. You start rocking and I was like, Jesus loves me. I mean, you just start connecting with the baby. And after like three minutes, she kind of looks at me and and starts making noises and starts going, oh, you know, babies do this sweet, sweet thing when they're young. They go, oh, oh. And after like five minutes, I was like, well, I'll pick up another baby. And so I, I laid her down. I was like, bye, sweet angel. And she lost it. She screamed at the top of her lungs. And I like grabbed her and I picked her up. And I suddenly went, these kids aren't crying. And it's not because they're happy. It's because they have no expectation that anyone will answer if they cry. I mean, the whole two hours I was in there, maybe one nanny came in to do an errand or something like that. They weren't touched by other babies. They had a bottle propped up in their mouth at the right times. They were changed, diapers, clothes. They had a nail trim once a week. They were never touched. Nobody looked at them. Nobody sang to them. Nobody talked to them. Nobody mimicked back what they were saying. And so their emotions shut off. You know, I've adopted one of those kids. And I know a lot of other people that have also adopted those kids who were starved of human touch and human connection. It is very hard for those kids to recalibrate emotionally. It's very hard for them to regulate themselves emotionally, very hard for them to trust and attach because they were starved of human contact in the first critical months and years of their life. Well, yeah, their attachment style has been totally damaged from that. Destroyed. A fundamental attachment for a newborn is to be picked up and consoled dozens of times a day. And if you watch a mom with a newborn, you'll see this. She either has the baby strapped to her body and constantly touching, or the baby whines, distress, picks them up, pat, 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 skin to skin. There's an oxytocin exchange in the skin to skin contact that lowers baby cortisol levels. And that is how babies emotionally regulate. Babies don't 
regulate themselves. They can't soothe themselves. They can't calm themselves down. Somebody must calm them. They are incapable. And when babies don't have human touch, it short circuits their emotional wiring. Okay. Now think about that from the moment of, of conception until birth. No human touch at all. Because of using an artificial womb. What is gestation supposed to be? It's noisy. You're always hearing your mother's heartbeat. You're hearing the swoosh of her digestive system. You're hearing her voice and her language. You're getting constant motion. You're getting rhythms. You're getting different tastes depending on what she eats. You're hearing her song. You're listening to her heartbeat. You know her smell. I mean, you're enveloped in your mother. It's nothing but touch for the first nine and a half months. And you think you're going to stick a baby in a bio bag so that you don't have to take time off from work or you can gestate a custom ordered baby because it's two men and you don't have a womb between you and it's too expensive to rent the womb of a woman in India anymore or whatever it is. I don't know if these babies will even live. I don't know. And if they do, I can't imagine what it does to their humanness. The kind of places that we're going with reproductive technologies is so anti-child, I don't even have a word for it. Yeah, and, and you have a whole book um, kind of talking about this and how adults are supposed to do hard things for kids. Kids should never have to do hard things for adults. And the book is the same name as your organization, Them Before Us. So I recommend they get it. You have a new book out called Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City. All of that will be in the description. And also two Spillover episodes with Katie Faust. If you subscribe to the Spillover anywhere you get your podcast, thumbs up this video, subscribe to this channel and follow Katie Faust. All of our info is in the description.